Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome you to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. For those of you that have been listening to us all day long on Transformation Talk Radio and the Dr. Pat Show, and you must be completely in the vibe of things. I want to give a shout-out to Sue London, broadcast live earlier today from Westerly, Rhode Island, WBLQ AM 1230. Uh, What she did was extraordinary. She brought her book to Westerly, Rhode Island. Island, and she's selling signed books, and um, most of the proceeds are going to go to a special, special, special fund for children out there. And so how can you not be inspired by what folks are doing these days? That's why I do what I do. That's why I get to talk to people like my very special guest here, Dr. Rick Hansen, joining me here in a minute. Uh, But more importantly, this is a time where it doesn't matter what your situation is. This is a time where you can find a slice of gratitude, where you could actually smile at somebody that you pass on the street. And, you know, you guys have been emailing me and and, and commenting on a few things that I've shared here recently. One of you asked me, how do I know anything about being down and out? Well, Without kind of going into that story a little bit, you know, all you need to do is just check out a little bit of my bio, a little bit of the information on the Dr. Patcha website. And many of you know that I was homeless at 17 years old. So what I want to say to you guys out there is that, you know, sometimes really rotten things happen to really good people. And that's not what we have to create our lives about. So today's show is is really kind of in the spirit of this, just one thing, developing a Buddha brain, one simple practice at a time, with neuropsychologist and author Dr. Rick Hansen. He's joining me here today. You know, this book is really kind of cool because one of the things, you know, that I have loved about getting to talk with the people that I get to talk with over and over and over again is that if you break this thing down into manageable chunks, then what you can really find is a blueprint for how to live an extraordinary life. And that's what I want to say to everybody out there right now. If you're listening, this is a show you're going to love. You're going to want to hear more about it. You're going to want to get a copy of Rick's book. You're going to want to do a lot of different things that – uh, you probably hadn't thought about before. Let me just tell you a little bit about my guest joining me here today, and then we've got a lot to talk about. You know, you know, first of all, this is not uh, this is not Dr. Rick's first book. Um, you know, he is author of the best-selling Buddha's Brain: Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. Now in 21 languages, over 300 days on Amazon list of top 100 best-selling nonfiction books. Why? Because there's this thing now that if we would have said neuropsychology, like even five years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, people would have looked at us like, how does that 
have anything to do with my joy. Well, this show today is to not only open the door with answers to that question, but it's also about this amazing, you know, this this pocket-sized companion to the best-selling book. It's just one thing. Because when when I wake up in the morning, I want to go to a book and I want to say, oh, look what I turned to today. Page 167, what does it say? Be generous. Do something. Give something. And I'm telling you, this is, as some people would say, not necessarily rocket science, but it is rocket energy. Dr. Rick, thank you for joining us here today. Can I call you Dr. Rick? Yes, or I'll call you, or just plain Rick is fine. Uh, Dr. Pat or Pat or Dr. Basili. Uh, anything you want to call me is fine. Uh, absolutely. Call me late to dinner. That's what my dad would say. Grip okay, so if I start calling you dude, don't get offended, all right? Not at all. I'm a California guy, so it's okay. <laughs> We're used to that here. <laughs> you know, I said a couple of things at the intro, and I really would like you to comment about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I listened to a couple of shows earlier today, and, and folks were talking about, you know, it's tough out there, and it's tough in here, and tough this and tough that and and you know yet I, I'm really struck by you know stories like the stories of Victor Frankel and what he experienced and I want to ask you about this I mean the idea of developing a Buddha brain you know one simple practice at a time but the whole Buddha brain idea is something that I think really warrants a conversation many people have heard the name Buddha as a matter of fact I got my Buddha up on the wall over there but they don't really understand what that means. Let's start at a basic conversation. When we say Buddha brain, what are we talking about? Yeah. Well, for one, what we're talking about applies to everybody because there's just one human brain, you know. The question is, what do we do with it? And science is now showing that the brain basically can go in one of two directions. It can either kind of come home to its natural resting place of peacefulness, happiness, and lovingness, or it can get tipped into a reactive place, which unfortunately it spends a lot of time in these days for most people, of feeling fearful and angry or disappointed, frustrated, and craving, or full of heartache and rejection and loss. And what a Buddha brain is, is one that rests more and more profoundly in an unshakable sense of underlying happiness, uh, peacefulness, and love. And that is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. I'm a very down-to-earth guy. I work with people all day long. I have a business background as well. I saw that in your background, uh, Pat, that you had that too. Yeah. I'm talking about what neuroscience is actually showing that people can do on their own, not with drugs and not with weird surgery or anything like that. They can actually do it on their own and train their own brain and gradually change the structure of the brain so it rests more and more deeply in this fundamental home base, like I said, of peacefulness, happiness, and love. And that's what the book's about. It's about little practical things people can do. Just pick one, just one thing. That's the title. Well, it's so complicated and busy these days. People, I think, really need one thing. I do. One thing to think about this day or this week or this year even. And then that's your one thing that you're going to use this day, this week, or this year to gradually change your brain for the better over time. You know, I had a, an, an, I have a couple of questions that were sent in from the listeners in advance because we were talking about this earlier today. Um, one of the questions that came in is uh, has to do with, okay, and I'm just going to give you the question the way it was given to me. Yeah. And it was one from one of our listeners, and she was basically saying, you know what, 
I love the idea of this, and I've got a, I've got a serious question for you, so I'm reading it here, Rick. Um, I am at a very low point in my life, and I'm actually a spiritual person and actually a spiritual counselor, counselor, but I'm dealing with some issues I have not dealt with before. You know, can you talk with uh, Dr. Dr. Hansen and ask Dr. Hansen how these principles can be applied to somebody that is taking the journey of the dark night of the soul? Wow. So I think you get the dark night of the soul question right there, uh, oh, yeah. Dr. Hansen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel it. And yeah. I feel it in your voice as you read it, too. Mm. Um, yeah. so hopefully the person... Um, Pardon me, I have a bit of a sore throat here. Yeah. The person who um, emailed that will be listening here. Well, I'd say first, um, kind of just a tail end of the previous question, a Buddha brain, the reason I chose the word Buddha is that people generally kind of appreciate the fact that without any claim for supernatural power or divine mission or anything like that, he actually developed himself over time. And so he, in a sense, acquired a Buddha brain. And you probably know this, that Buddha... Well, the original meaning is, you know, deep knowing, deep understanding. So that's what I mean when I think of a Buddha brain. A Buddha brain's for everybody, you know, whatever their background or spirituality or lack thereof. Okay, so that's one part. The dark night of the soul. Um, well, first, methods, you know, like in my book or in many other forms of uh, self-help um, are, you know, they're not necessarily going to be the everything a person needs to really deal with the dark night of the soul. And that's where things like, you know, regular therapy perhaps come in or, or really taking care of the body's health come in. Sometimes there are health problems that take us into those dark nights. Sometimes spiritual counseling because there's a spiritual or existential dimension to it. So I just want to be honest about, you know, what I can offer. That said, um, one of the most important things to do when we're in those dark nights is to feel that there's at least one thing we can do. In other words, there's at least one thing we can do to alter or support a healthy way of responding to our situation, even if that one thing is just being able to stay mindful, which is one of the 52 practices in the book, staying mindful of what's happening and observing it rather than being entirely hijacked by it. The second thing I would say is that I think there are three great steps in healing and growth and spiritual life. One, the first step is we be with what's there. We're mindful of it. We're aware of it. We feel the feelings. We experience the experience. We bear our own suffering. And it's the most important step of all. And sometimes it's sufficient. Sometimes that alone is transformative. But usually it's not. In my experience, we can be aware of what's there, and that, that helps, okay? But it doesn't make it necessarily go away. We need to move on and then pull weeds and plant flowers. We can't just be aware of, you know, the Bermuda grass in our garden. And that goes to the second step of letting go of the burdens that weigh us down, letting go of the negative thoughts that can drag us into the dark night of the soul, letting go of the, the previous trauma, for example, from um, experiences, uh, you know, in childhood or, or even in adulthood. There's a letting go phase. And then in the third great step, after we release what's problematic and negative, we've got to replace it with something positive, and that's a step in particular I, that I'm very fond of, and I think many, many people overlook the importance of turning to factually based, usually small, everyday positive experiences, and then tricking the brain to actually uh, internalize 
these positive experiences and these positive resources and soak them in, you know, like water going into a sponge. So those, you know, in a sense are the three great phases, let be, let go, let in. And I think one part when we're in a dark night of the soul is to live and abide in the let be phase, is to be with what's there, but to never forget the importance of letting go of the pain, letting go of the doubt and despair, and replacing it with some positive alternatives. That's the best thing we can do for ourselves, and frankly, it's the best thing we can do for others and even the whole wide world, because it's by getting our own cup to run us over that then we have more to offer other people. You know, I wanted to thank you so much. That was so beautifully said here. Um, you know, Rick, I, I, I honestly, I, it, it was beautiful. I mean, it was it was melodic. It was like, oh, okay, I can do what he's talking about. I can do this. That's right. Simple thing. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I wanted to to ask you to really address is this conversation that we have with ourselves, and I'm going to say we have it with ourselves because we do. We talk to ourselves. People may not like to admit this, but I'm going to tell you I talk to myself. Um, but sometimes someone will um, come across, um, you know, that I'll meet, and they'll ask me a riveting question. I want to tell you what the riveting question um, was that they asked me here recently. And it took me a minute to regroup. And maybe you can explain what happened in my brain when they asked me this question. So they, they asked me the question. They said, Dr. Pat, I was at an event last weekend. I met quite a few of the listeners. And they said, Dr. Pat, can I ask you a question? What if you were to lose everything you built? What if you were to lose the show? What if you were to lose the network? What if you were to lose that? I mean, do you find that's an interesting question? I think it's profoundly important. Yeah. <laughs> so many levels. Yeah. yeah. Because, uh, sooner or later, uh, we will lose everything. Um, yeah. I'll, you know, if I can offer this, you know, and I, I offer it just for people to, you know, judge it on its own merits, but there, there are these so-called five reflections from Tibetan Buddhism, and I'll just say them quickly here. The first reflection is, is it given to me to avoid old age? Second, is it given to me to avoid um, um, disease? Third, is it given to me to avoid death? Fourth, is it given to me to avoid um, being separated one day, one way or another, from everything I love? And fifth, is it given to me to avoid inheriting the results of my actions? And I went through that kind of quickly. You know, the right answer, quote, unquote, of course, we have to feel it in our heart, is no to each one of those. It's not given to any of us to be separated, you know, one day. It's interesting. I had a, I, I had a spiritual teacher at one point who said that everyone's a mystic on their deathbed. You know, why not start sooner? <laughs> and, and I think appreciating the impermanence of everything and its transience um, helps us be very grateful for what we do have and to also hold it lightly. And to appreciate, frankly, the role of fortune in what we have, both good fortune and bad fortune. And um, that's where I, I personally try to practice a, a recognition of my own inevitable death and to let myself feel it, you know, on a regular basis, not in a morbid way, but in a way that takes me to, you know, really 
appreciating life and also being kind and kinder to others. You know, I, I had my car towed today because the, the engine was on the frets, and I was looking at this huge, burly truck driver kind of guy. I'm more like a nerd. You know, I'm a rock climber. I could play football pretty darn well, but I'm basically a dork. You know, this <laughs> dude was a stud, big, burly, manly guy, nice guy, big heart. I looked at him, and I thought I could just... I knew, I just had a moment of compassion to recognize that, that even he was grappling with, with old age, disease, and death, ultimately. And he, too, was going to have to face that, and as we all must at some point. And, uh, you know, that took me to a moment of compassion for him. So that mm-hmm. recognition of death, I think, is very, and, is very important for all of us. And the truth is out there, there are people who've lost everything, who've lost a lot. They've lost children, loved ones. They've been on, they're the victims of injustice institutional oppression of various kinds, what have you, and then what do you do, you know? And um, to me, that goes to the Viktor Frankl quote that you started with, which is yeah. even in Auschwitz, even in the Holocaust, uh, even in the in the very worst, um, fundam- we have a fundamental human freedom no one can ever take away from us, which is the freedom to choose how we will respond to our circumstances, particularly inside our own minds. And, you know, this is really bring, you know, this kind of brings, brings us to the book, just one thing and also, uh, you know, Buddha mind and, and Buddha brain and, and much more. You know, it was an interesting question that I got asked and, and, and I, and, you know, my answer really was, you know, I have lost everything. Yeah. And I and my answer was I I have you know in my own mind at different points in time in my life, Doctor Rick, I had lost everything, you know, being homeless at seventeen. You actually don't really think you got like uh, much going on there. Yeah, right. I, um, you know, for me, um, in two thousand and four, I came down with a mystery disease that was killing me. You know, I faced death every night when I went to bed. I used all of my savings, you know, for alternative treatments. My 14-year relationship ended. You know, it's really interesting, but even with all of the loss I've had, I lost my mother at age seven, that question struck a nerve. What part of my brain, you know, got triggered from that question? Was it the part that remembered all the losses, or was it the part that kicked in and, and for me said, you know, what does it really mean to lose everything? Do we lose ourselves, Dr. Rick? Yeah, well, about the the brain part. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm I'm I wow, I hear you. You know, it's to me just to just I think it's important to acknowledge that you um you know, in that you, in that time that you were homeless, um there were another million children in America that year who were also homeless too. Mhm. Which is really mm-hmm. quite quite sad yeah it is sad Um, so well the brain uh what i would say there is that first science doesn't really know everything about the brain by far and um so there's not i think a super definitive answer but i'll tell you a couple of things that struck me you know one is that um parts of your brain activated that have to do with the emotional system, you know, the limbic system, mm-hmm. um, where we have emotion, where you are grappling with a sense of loss. But also, deep in the core of the brain, kind of sitting in the brain stem and then the structures on top of it, the kind of primal core of the brain, was this vitality, if I could even call it an animal vitality, 
pardon me, an animal vitality almost, that said, I will survive. I will be, and to paraphrase Maya Angelou, right, I will be affected by what has happened to me, but I will not be defined by it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I could, you know, that strength in you came forward. And then, of course, in more of the cortex, you had a more general understanding of that could put things in perspective and could, you know, guide yourself going forward. The, the last thing I would say is that in your brain, of course, are lots and lots of residues of learning from life. You know, it's interesting. The brain is constantly changing its structure based on what we experience. The only question is, is it changing for better or worse, and who's doing the changing, right? And you clearly have been a person with a ton of moxie who's really been the captain of your own ship, probably even before, you know, you were homeless at 17. And the benefits, the results of those gradual, just one things, all those little one things yeah. that you did and minute at a time and an hour at a time, a day at a time, what have you, you know, gradually accumulated inside your own brain. It's like they say in Tibet, it's a great saying, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, I, I want to comment on your book for a minute. For those of you just tuning in, I have to tell you, you, you guys out there, I mean, if you haven't gone out and gotten a gift for someone that could use a, a lift up, this book, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time, it is extremely powerful. It's by um, Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen. I'm going to give you a website in a minute um, to go to. It is extremely powerful. And I was sharing with all of uh, you at the beginning of the show that the way that I work with Rick's book is I, you know, I pick it up, I open to a page, and lo and behold, what is the message that is on that page? You know, one of the things I picked up today, I opened to page 21, and I think that, excuse me, um, page 90, where, where you talk about fine strength. But you not only describe this is what you need to do, this book You've crafted a way for people to learn how to find strength. Can you talk a little bit about this book and why this was put together in the way that it is? Oh, thank you. Well, I um, <clears throat> was really interested in basically – well, for, let me say it like this. First, I'm a fan of practice. I'm a plugger. You know, yeah. I'm a big fan of you can't do a darn thing about the past. You can't do much about the present, right? In the moment that the present is here is, is what it is, right? But what you, we can influence is the next few minutes. And then after that, it sort of dribbles out, you know. But at least we can influence the next few minutes. The question is, are we doing the best we can? to influence the next few minutes, right? And that's where the power of practice comes in. That's where, you know, little efforts, the law of little things, gradually accumulate to produce big results over time. So then I asked myself, given what I know about brain science and my own background in both clinical psychology and raising a family and business and and also contemplative practice, what are the 50 or so most powerful practices I know that people can use in the trenches and the mess, you know, of daily life to gradually change their brain and therefore their life for the better. And that's what I tried to do in this book and write something that was super down-to-earth and accessible and immediately useful. So that was the frame. And then inside that, um, I would say that some of the practices that, that, well, in general, what I'm really talking about here um, is building up resources inside, right, turning toward the positive and seeing the world, you know, clearly seeing the world, living in truth, as it were. 
and then doing little things that are neurologically informed that uh, make this book done, you know, very different from a typical self-help book because uh, it's really grounded in how you can change your own brain. So what I'm talking about is real. I mean, you really are changing neural circuits by doing the practices in the book. And one of the nice things about that is you then take them with you wherever you go. Actually, I should say one more thing that drove the book. It's a really an appreciation for um, the caveman brain we've all got, caveman, cavewoman <laughs> brain, because if you, if you get how the brain evolved, it's like a blessing and a curse. I mean, the blessing of the brain is that our home base, when we're not disturbed, is really good. It's that fundamental place of peacefulness, happiness, and love. That's the good news. But the bad news is that the, the brain is biased toward getting disturbed and kicked into fight or flight, stress response, you know, uh, actions. And the brain has a negativity bias, for example. It's biased toward looking for negative experience, negative information, and then overreacting, and then absolutely immediately storing that negative experience in emotional memory. You know, once burned, twice shy. You, you could have a thousand episodes with dogs and the one you'll remember is when the dog snarled at you and nearly bit you you know yes. so the brain has these dedicated fast track systems for negative experiences but positive experiences unless they're million dollar moments flow through the brain like water through a sieve unless you really savor them in other words unless people dwell on a negative on a positive experience 10 20 seconds in a row that positive experience will not transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage Right? That means that positive experiences, since we usually don't do that, positive experiences commonly flow through the brain like water through a sieve, but negative ones get caught every time, making the brain like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. That was great for keeping ancestors alive in the Serengeti. You know, when rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today, right? But today, the, this negativity bias of the brain, which the science you know, widely recognizes it's indeed the case. It's a design flaw for life in the 21st century. It's lousy for quality of life, and it's lousy for long-term health and well-being because the costs of getting upset based on the negativity bias are really significant in terms of long-term health and, and well-being. You know, back in the day when people were dead by their 30th birthday, it made sense to have the uh, short-term benefits of stress reactions, right? But these days, when we're living past our 30th birthday, hopefully, uh, the long-term costs are a lot greater. So paying attention to this, you know, caveman, cavewoman brain we got. We got the inner lizard inside our head. We got the little rat inside our head and the little monkey inside our head, too, the little menagerie there. You know, we got to take care of the inner zoo and take charge of the inner zoo, or it's going to take charge of us and take charge of us as a species. You know, with greedy appetites that are kind of driving global warming and fears and aggressions that are driving conflict and war, armed with now nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. So to me, it's a very important theme, one brain at a time, to take to become more skillful with and to take charge of this caveman, cavewoman brain. Well, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, that I, I was struck by, which really talks to, you know, this conversation that we're having about this woundedness is, you know, I, I, I don't remember exactly where it is in the book, but I remember what it is. You say in the book, fill the hole in your heart. Yeah. 
And in, and I want to talk about this a minute, but, you know, before we go to break and then come back and talk about mindfulness, because I want to talk about the emotional side of this and how you covered this here. You know, fill the hole in your heart, right? Yeah. You're right. If you're living to 30 years old, right, I, I'm thinking about myself. Yeah. You know, if my life would have been over at 30, and boy, I came close to it, if my life would have been over at 30, you know, would I have gone through some pain? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the next, you know, 20 years from there, they were jam-full of disappointment, woundedness, job loss. And, and let's talk about what people are going through right now and what these past three years are, have been about, Rick. I mean, don't we have people right now, really good, cool people, that may have this hole in their heart and they don't know what to do with it? Oh, for sure. Um what I, what I, oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, not just the last three years, you know. Well, no, uh, I know. Yeah. So, if you think about it like this, if you got a brain, right, that's Velcro for the negative, um, that means that you've really got to focus and stay with positive experiences ten, twenty mm-hmm. seconds in a row to get them to transfer into emotional memory. Now, that gives us though many opportunities every day. 30 seconds at a time, and I go through the details of this, and one practice is called taking in the good. It's a fundamental Mm -hmm. practice. It's the second chapter in the book after get on your own side because those two are so fundamental. Um, You know, in that particular practice, I talk about ways to actually rest attention on a positive experience and to stay with it and not let yourself be distracted from it because with the little voice inside your head, you were talking about talking to yourself, not getting distracted by the little voice that says, you don't deserve this or it's a sin or you should think about other people first. You know, keep those voices at bay. I talk about how to do that and rest your attention on um, that positive experience because as they say, neurons that fire together wire together. And then to take it a step further, if you connect a positive experience that's like an antidote, a key positive experience. If you connect it to a sense of old pain, the positive experience will gradually soothe and replace the old pain because when two things are held in awareness at the same time, they start associating with each other. Neurons that fire together wire together. So what you're doing is you're getting the positive experience to gradually um, Touch that old pain, soothe it, replace it, give your heart, feed your heart what it's always needed, and therefore gradually, actually, factually, truly fill the hole in your heart. And that's another method in the book. Oh, it's amazing. We're going to take a short break, everyone. But before we do, um, you know, Rick, I would love for you to give out your website, let folks know, of course, they can get the book just about anywhere, Amazon for sure. But, you know, what's the best website um, um, sure. we should be sending people to? Yeah, you're very kind, Pat. Thank you. Uh, Buddhistbrain.com, easy to remember, Buddhistbrain.com. Uh, I think the book itself is about it's about eleven dollars on Amazon, if that ten eighty five or something. Uh, but they can also get a ton of free resources uh, on my website, uh, uh, BuddhistBrain.com. 
Okay, everyone, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, we're going to be exploring this thing that we have heard so much about these days. Yeah, no, it's not economy. It is mindfulness. What does it mean to be mindful? How do you even know that you're not being mindful? How do you know you are being mindful? This is the world that we get to step into. And I was so, I, I was so caught by the way that Rick talks about this in this incredible book, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. And trust me, it is one simple practice at a time. But then when we come back, I also want to talk about some of the other things that Rick talks about. Some of them with, uh, let's just say they hit a few little hot buttons for me. You're listening to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. Very special guest joining me here today, Dr. Rick Hansen. When we come back, mindful. Are you mindful? Why do you even need to be mindful? Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Dr. Pat Show. What if your best friend could take a peek into the future? Psychic, author, and cosmic coach Dougal Fraser is that friend. He's the queer guy with a third eye. From gossip to gurus, meditation to martinis, the Dougal Fraser Show is a call-in advice show that provides insights and information on creating your best life. Every Tuesday at 10, he'll take calls and talk about love, money, sex, pop culture, and give free advice. No topic is off limits. It's the Dougal Fraser Show. Ladies, are you living an inspired life? Do you yearn for a more passionate, dream-filled life? Here's Linda Joy, founder of Aspire Magazine, and she has a gift for you. Aspire has launched its Mission to Inspire initiative with a commitment to give away 100,000 one-year digital subscriptions to women around the globe. Every subscription comes with a multitude of free gifts from our team inspiration partners. To claim it all, go to AspireMag.net today. No purchase necessary and live an inspired life. Are you feeling stuck? Do you want to be free from fears and doubts and finally feel good about yourself, but you just don't know how to get there? Dr. Schaub's Accelerated Breakthrough Program provides you with the tools and solutions to go beyond your limitations and achieve self-empowered confidence. Call for your free phone consultation at 866-903-MIND. Visit CellularWisdom.com. That's CellularWisdom.com. had a way to protect yourself from cancer, depression, disease, and dispel the nastiest bugs that attempt to hide undetected. Take a moment to wonder, how does that feel? How powerful? Did you know that enough golden sunlight produces vitamin D in your body to protect itself against disease? Producing enough vitamin D can kill cancer, even help with weight loss. This amazing little vitamin is actually not a vitamin at all but a powerhouse of protection that can activate your body's innate healing ability, but only if you have enough in your blood to shine the light. Tune in to award-winning author Dr. Lucinda Messer as she shares how you can harness the power of sunlight to create a healthy body and mind. 
her book, Powerful Medicine. Vitamin D, shedding light on a worldwide health crisis, is like having a vitamin D expert on hand to answer all your health questions. For more information, visit PowerfulD.com. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. And I just, I got to tell you, I mean, I love, I love how things come across my desk. And thanks to Linda for, you know, just getting Rick to come on the show here. Just one thing, developing a Buddha brain, one simple practice at a time. And I was sharing with Rick that, you know, since 2003, I have read, every book of every person I've ever interviewed. Some of them I read more in depth than others. Some of them, like this book, I use as a guide, something I can keep by my desk and I can open it to a page and I can get some insight. Because beyond finding strength, and certainly that's been my journey, I didn't have a clue, Rick, about what it meant to be mindful. You know, people that hear me now on the radio and the Dr. Pat show and my daytime show and all of that, a lot of them know the story and a lot of them don't. I didn't start this being, uh, let's just say, I wasn't one of the more conscious-minded people on the planet. I had to learn to be. So let's talk about what it means to be mindful and how does being mindful connect to that place in our heart and our emotions. Right. Well, <clears throat> let's see. So as you're right, mindfulness is big in the news these days. And, <laughs> uh, you know, really. Um, well, what does it mean? So let's put it in perspective. Yes, the brain is changing and neurons that fire together wire together throughout the nervous system. In other words, what we think, what we feel, what we want, what we hope, what we dream, etc., is changing the brain. But those changes happen um turbocharged for what we're paying focused attention to. The problem is, in other words, attention is like a spotlight. It illuminates what it rests upon and then sucks it into your brain. The problem is most people don't have very good control of their spotlight for many reasons. One is that, you know, animals back in the day that were all zen, you know, focused on the light on the leaves, chomp. They got eaten, right, because they weren't distractible and constantly looking over their shoulder at some, you know, threat that was about to get them. Also, today we have a kind of an ADD culture. We're bombarded with stimulation and multitasking and, you know, corporate downsizing. We've got one person now doing two and a half people's jobs or more, right? So, you know, it's important to get more control of that spotlight, and mindfulness is the fundamental training in getting control of your own attention. And that means getting control of your brain, which means getting control of your life. It's interesting. It's like you've got this, you know, I don't know what, two-ton automobile, but it's controlled by a couple of simple things. If you just get control of that steering wheel, you know, you can guide this enormous car. The steering wheel might weigh five pounds, I don't know, but by getting control of it, you can control the whole car. In the same way, getting control of your attention and taking control of it from all the people out there, the media, and and also other people who are trying to distract you, and also getting control 
of your attention from the little voices in the mind that are self-critical and beating you up or holding on to grudges and cases against other people. You know, getting control of your attention in that way is a fundamental way to change the brain. That's why I think any kind of mindfulness training, whether it's meditation or prayer or doing arts and crafts that involve concentration or just going out for a walk with the dog, but using that time not to rumble and grumble inside your head, but in fact just kind of, you know, follow your breath or stay in the present moment with whatever you're doing walking your dog. These are all good ways, you know, to train attention. And I have some methods in the book about um, training the brain, you know, to have more control over its attention. I think mindfulness also brings us into the present moment, which is, as Eckhart Tolle teaches, as we know, is the only moment where anything really happens or can change. And that's another benefit of mindfulness. Well, and you know, um, I, I, I don't think I ever told you what my, my response was uh, to the, the listener that asked me that question, what if you were to lose everything? Right. Uh, it, it, it was really interesting because it did hit a nerve, and I, I want to talk with you a little bit about that. Because for somebody like me, who basically came close to losing everything, including my life. So you can imagine, and, you know, from your point of view, you know, from a neuropsychology point of view, that probably, that question probably went through the gazillion connections in my brain, probably brought some, you know, right? Yeah. So that my little heart was like panting a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. <this> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, you know, you can feel my little palpitations in my heart with the question. Yeah. But what I remembered was what I learned when I I would go to bed at night. And two of my friends, by the way, died from what I had. Uh, one of them couldn't make it out to Seattle in time to see the doctor that I was seeing. Yeah. Um, I would go to bed at night, and there was a realization that you, that I would not wake up alive the next day. I mean, that wasn't like a joke. That was a realization. Um, and I remember this idea of mindfulness that you talk about. I didn't have a word for it. But what I was struck by was, in this moment, I'm alive and I'm awake. If I were to take the step, the next step, and go, will I be awake tomorrow? I might as well have invited Darth Vader into my bedroom. Yeah. So my answer was, you know, in this moment, my life is full and rich. Yeah. And, and, and that was so, I was so struck by, you know, that, but also struck by, you know, what you talk about um, in a lot of places in the book. I was especially, uh, you know, drawn to the conversation in the book about aspire without attachment, and that is worth a big conversation for, with, you know, for us to have right now. Okay. How do we do this? I mean, I know for myself, I've danced on that that tightrope between attachment, intention, and so much. But when you point this out. As one of these, the, these, these amazing things we aspire without attachment, it really does require a conversation. And it really does have to do with spirituality, doesn't it, Dr. Rick? Mm. Wow, that's so deep, Pat, that you took it there. Uh, well, so first I should tell people what I mean. Um, okay. So it's important to 
so I, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I have something of a Buddhist background, and I'm grappling with this fundamental question, which is, wait a sec, is, is attachment really the root of suffering, which is not exactly what the Buddha said. Is desire the root of suffering? It's not also exactly what he said. Um, actually, what he said was that it's craving that's the root of suffering. And he also said there are many forms of healthy desire. For example, the desire for the welfare of others is a very healthy desire, or the desire to you know, pull a hand off of a hot stove or to heal an illness is a healthy desire. The question is, how do we pursue healthy desires, right? Like helping the world become a better place or going out and getting a Ph.D. or starting a business or asking for love or the healthy desire to speak up when we feel we've been wronged by some family member or in-law or at work, whatever, or to stick up for other people who are being picked on. I just actually met with a sixth grader boy a couple hours ago about dealing with the ways that he's being bullied. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have healthy desires, but the problem is the brain is hardwired to tip fast into craving, and then we get attached. We get driven. We get into a mindset of must, I have to. We get ourselves in it. We get our ego caught up in it, right, our, our healthy desires even. And then that's when suffering begins and harm for ourselves and other people. So that tipping point between liking and wanting, is really fundamental. Actually, in the brain, there are separate nodes in the you know emotional reward systems in the brain that do liking or wanting. You can like something without wanting more. Like if you're just stuffed at the end of the meal, you know you can like dessert, but you don't want any. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you can want things without enjoying them. I see people in, like I was in Vegas recently doing a conference and watching people in the casinos, you know, pulling on the slot machines. They were not having fun, but they were driven to keep at it, right? So the happy place, it's said that liking without wanting is heaven, but wanting without liking is hell. The happy place is to aspire it's, and to get on your own side and to have grit and determination and dream big dreams, keep your eyes on the prize, you know, speak from the heart, reach for the love you want, build the businesses that you, you, know, you care about, work to get that stop sign installed in your neighborhood, whatever, you know, aspire. But to do it without tipping into the wanting that leads to suffering. And that's what that particular practice is about. Some of the great ways to do it is to really notice. I'll give you two right now. One is to notice when you start getting into must or have to or, uh, or disaster thinking if you're not able to fulfill your aspiration. That's a huge warning flag. And when you can let go of those musts, then you don't suffer so much. And the second uh, way in is to not take it so personally. It's to really appreciate that most of the factors that lead to success for your aspiration or failure are truly outside of your control. We get kind of egoic, I think, and in this culture in America, we tend to particularly do that. You know, if we are successful, we think we're the greatest person in the world. If we fail, we think we're the worst person in the world. And the truth is, we're the same person. <laughs> and most of what leads to success or failure is due to many, many factors that are outside of our control. You know, the 10,000 causes upstream. So I... To wrap up here, I think I moved to San Francisco in 1980, just when the 49ers were starting to do really well. And <laughs> as a guy who likes watching football, um, <laughs> I remember what it was said about them. You know, when they were really remark, they were a really remarkable team for for roughly 10 years or so. And it was said that if they won, they walked off the field calmly. 
if they lost, they walked off the field calmly. And, you know, they, of course, they enjoyed winning and they wanted to win. You can't win at the NFL if you don't have incredible passion for it, intense aspiration. But they weren't attached to winning. And that, would, that enabled them to have a clear mind and a clear heart and keep going out there and doing the things that would help them win the next Sunday. Well, I don't know if you're still in San Francisco, but they're doing pretty good this year. Yeah, they are. I'm happy camper. I know. They were were down in the dumps for way too long, but anyway. I don't think anybody can figure out how they're doing as good as they're doing. Well, it's the coach. A lot of it's the coach. Well, don't you think it is? I mean, uh, you know, and and it's one of the things I think that you talk about in the book, and this is really something that I want to talk about, you know, as we bring, you know, this, this beautiful time you and I have spent together. You know, it, it is the thing that you say in the book, have faith. Now, I'd really like to talk about this because it is the one thing that I can point to in my life that uh, helped pull me up. And, and I don't really know how to talk about it, right? Not quite the way that you've talked about it. Let's talk about this idea of having faith. Some people say faith, hope, you know, I, I think they're different. What do you say? Well, it's, it's deep, you know. Well, first of all, for some people, what faith means, which goes to your your previous comment about mm-hmm. isn't it spiritual. Ultimately, um, yep. it helps us aspire without attachment. And I think, uh, you know, for for many people, you're right, exactly right. It's an abiding sense of some kind of underlying or pervading presence, love, consciousness. Call it God or by no name at all. Um, there, that it's their sense of that or even faith in that, if you will, confidence in that, that enables them to aspire and to try as hard as they can without being attached to the results. That's really true. On the other hand, I think there are people, honestly, and I, for me, even though I myself am, am uh, you know, I, I have a sense of the divine and, and as well as a belief in it, you know, based on, you know, what to me is, is logical and reasonable, um, I, I think it's important to respect the people who just don't connect with that. You know, they're either an atheist or an agnostic, and they don't have a strong sense of that. And, you know, there, too, are many ways to aspire without attachment. So when I mean having faith, I mean it both for the people that are spiritual and the people that are not spiritual. For the spiritual people, I think that there really is a divine or there isn't. I happen to think that there is. And if your belief and even experience is that there is, well, then, you know, have faith in that and come from that and take refuge in that, to use the Buddhist language, taking refuge. Um, let yourself be given over to and lived by the highest and most extraordinary and most wonderful things you have a sense of. That's for sure there for spiritual people. And for people who don't have a, a clear sense of that, which is perfectly fine, think of the other things you have faith in or can um, have informed or reasonable faith in, like faith and the, the fruits that will come with sustained effort. Uh, sustained effort. Like when I think of you, Pat, you are inspiring. You are an exemplar of sustained effort. And sustained effort pays off, you know. Even if you don't win at, you know, at every battle, even if you don't find gold under every stone, if you keep plugging, right, it's going to lead to a good result. That's something to have faith in. Or have faith in the deep goodness in everyone's heart. They may express that goodness or pursue it in ways that are bad or harmful or full of suffering, what have you. But deep down, there's a goodness in every person. You can really see that. Look in the eyes of, of a child. No child. There's no, there are 
no child is born evil, right? Uh, so that's our core, right? And we can also, I think, have faith in what we can build together. You know, I see a lot of forces out in the world that tend to divide people from each other or drive them into their little caves, you know, where they're consumers watching the flickering screen, buying things. And uh, I think it's important to stand against those forces. You know, we evolved in community. We're born in community. Hopefully we usually die in community. And along the way, community is profoundly central to what uh, will produce individual health. And it's community within humanity altogether that will also produce planetary health. And I think people like you and you know, to some small way, the work I'm trying to do is supports that larger sense of community that will help heal this world. I love this conversation, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the work that you do in a lot of ways, Rick, you know, you hold faith for some people that can't quite get there themselves just yet. And what I mean by that is because of the work that you do, because of the messages, because of the books, because of what you put out there, the invitation, let's call it, that means that in order for you to do what you do, you must have faith or must believe that the people out there are worthy of and deserve and it is their birthright to a happy life. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, would you? No, well, thank you. That's that's kind of you. Um, you know, I think that some one of the things that makes people happiest is being of some use to others. I mean, that's yeah. a story that you well know, and I'm sure the people listening here well know. And um, I think one of the reasons why many people are unhappy or destructive, and, and I think this it's interesting to think of this for teenagers, you know, who are thwarted. From their, in many ways, from actually making a contribution. It creates a sort of soul sickness to not be able to give the love that's in our heart. Yes, we want to receive love, but for many people, the deepest wound is that there haven't been appropriate vessels, really, in their life or it hasn't worked out uh, to receive all the love that they have. You know, so the chance to, you know, do a little bit, do my little bit, do do your bit, etc. What a great blessing. What a What a fantastic thing that we get to do this. Absolutely. And, you know, along with faith is uh, something else you talk about. And I have to tell you that this is the one thing that in my life uh, was one of the hardest things to do. But once I started to do it, um, everything changed. And you talk about you, you invite people to be grateful. And I, and I put great gratitude and faith kind of together in my mind. I'm not sure if that makes sense to anybody else. But you talk about gratitude. Let's take a moment to talk about it because, you know, if we are grateful, Rick, can, can fear and angst exist with it? I don't think it can from a neurological point of view. Maybe you can help me out here. Can fear and gratitude coexist, you mean? Yeah. What? That's kind of brilliant, actually, that you put that you put that there. Uh, it's hard. Well, so fear has to do with two kinds of things. One, there's we we have fear based on a sense of threat. <coughs> Pardon me while I swallow some tea. And um, many of those threats come from inside us. In other words, it's useful to appreciate that most of the inputs to the brain originate inside our own bodies. So. 
we react to threat like a sense of pain in the body. Well, what does that mean? Or we get a queasy feeling. What does that mean? Or a thought arises. Something comes up from our past or our present and we, that makes us worry. All right. The other source of threat, of, of fear or anxiety, is this kind of ongoing background trickle in the nervous system that Mother Nature has given us to keep us always looking over our shoulders, you know, for the stick that's about to land, right, or the tiger that's about to pounce. And so gratitude really orients us away from threats toward uh, resources and opportunities. And that right there does tend to undo fear, certainly the first kind of fear, the fear based on threat. And then progressively over time, if people have many, you know, attitudes of gratitude, as you heard, you've heard that saying, that old saying, yeah. if, they, yeah. if they do the practice in my book of taking in the good of many moments of gratitude, the problem with often with gratitude is people, for people it's just conceptual. They think it or they know it. They know they're fortunate, but they don't feel good as a result, and therefore they don't have a chance to change emotionally. But if people will take those extra 10, 15 seconds I talk about to feel gratitude and feel happy and peaceful and loving based on the blessings, the good fortune in their life, and really stay with that, you know, for half a minute or so, that will then gradually sink in and it will gradually dial down that background trickle of anxiety that, which for some people is more like a flood than a trickle, you know, that is kind of innate fear. So for both those reasons, you know, um, gratitude is a very good way to undo fear, both in terms of taking us away from a sense of, you know, threat and also uh, dialing down the fear thermostat, you know, that's deep in our own nervous system. Well, you know, this is, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm so thrilled, Rick, that you're able to join me here today. And I want to thank you for doing all that you do and being all that you are. Um, I want to make sure everybody out there has uh, information on how to find out more. You can go to buddhasbrain.com, find out more about Rick, about, and there's just a ton of information on the website out there. Sign up for his newsletters, uh, get ready to train your brain, uh, and just one thing, developing Buddha Brain one simple practice at a time. That's the book we were referring to or that I was referring to um, all night long, and we we didn't even get to all of this. I want to thank you for joining me. And I ask one last question. What is your personal message for all of us today here, uh, Rick? Um, uh, you know, Dr. Rick Hansen, everyone, what's your personal message? What would you love to leave us with here? Well, before I say it, I want to say thank you, Dr. Pat. This has been truly a very special interview. I've done a lot of interviews, and, you know, this one's been very, very special to me. Um, my one message, really short and sweet, is keep going. Keep trying. You know, it's funny. I, I had a moment with a spiritual teacher where I shared an insight and just wanted to check it out to see if it was valid and useful. And he's, he nodded and smiled and said, yeah, exactly. And then he paused and said two words I'll never forget. He said, keep going. You know, mm-hmm. And there's so much power and result in continuing to practice doing little things. You really do. Everyone listening at a time, as you said, the last three years or the last 30, when a lot of people, especially the middle class, have just um, been running fast, barely to stay abreast, if not being swept backwards. Um, You know, it's easy to feel, to lose heart and lose faith, as you say, and to lose sight of the possibilities that actually are still out there. And that's one reason why your work's so important, Dr. Pat, to help people not lose sight of those possibilities. Deep in our hearts, it's really important onto the sense 
that we can keep trying. And if we keep trying, we truly will uh, produce results, even if it's only inside our own and how we experience living. Oh, I love it. Dr. Rick Hansen, everyone, just one thing. I want to thank all of you out there, and thank you so much for the kind words. Um, you know, Rick, uh, it's been a great conversation. I love this book. I can't wait to get you back. I want to just tell everybody out there, go to the website, check it out, buddhasbrain.com. Uh, get a copy of the book, Just One Thing, if not for yourself, for yourself and a friend, and work through these together. Work through these together. It's enormously, enormously effective. I want to thank you guys for tuning us in, turning us on. If you've missed any part of this, the archive will be up at the drpatshow.com and Transformation Talk Radio. Remember, each and every one of us has the ability to craft, to carve, and to live the lives we desire. Let's do it together. We'll see you next time on the Dr. Pat Show. Soapbox is way too high overgrown. You can barely see the ground or touch the sky. Your high horse has taken off and left you nowhere to be found. Better off dead, or so you said. But don't worry, we all fall down somehow. Someday, not somehow, not maybe, we're gonna make